You're listening to the Performance Group Podcast, a place to listen, learn, and get to know the unseen heroes of our local community. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Sean Kirby, and on the Performance Group Podcast, we make it our mission to learn from those around us and shed light on our local community. If you're new to the show, we have spoken to business leaders, community, organizers, friends, and family. And before we jump in today, I hope to ask you for a favor. If you could please just take one second to hit subscribe and share our posts. It would mean a whole lot to me, our team here at the Performance Group, and our amazing guests on today's show. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Performance Group Podcast. And on today's episode is a special episode. This episode is going to be probably a reoccurring episode and we are going to do what's called the blue collar blueprint today we have probably one of the most influential people in the state of indiana as a blue collar business owner uh we have paul schwinghammer he is the owner of hallmark homes incorporated he is actually the president of the indiana builders association the newly appointed president of the indiana builders association paul thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule to sit down and talk to us about um not only the builders association but kind of your story and how you got to where you are today Sure, glad to be with you. So um, I want to talk a little bit about how long have you been part of the Indiana Builders Association before you got to, you know, now the president of the organization? Well, actually, when we started the company back in 1992, one of the first things we did was join the Builders Association. Um, and with that, you become a member of not only the local of association, in this case, Madison County, Uh, but also the Indiana Builders Association and the National Association of Home Builders. So it's a a three-tiered membership approach. And so Hallmark Homes and myself have uh, been longstanding members ever since we founded the company, well, 30 years ago this month. What all have you seen change since 1992 in the, the building arena? Well, you know, a house is still a house for the most part. Uh, Styles change, features change, people's tastes change. Uh, Obviously, the thing we're facing now that we haven't faced in really the whole 30 years of history is the, you know, tremendous increase of price uh, with all building materials. Uh, Typically, you know, year over year for, let's say, 27, 28 of those years, we would get about a 3% you know, bump in prices, just the normal kind of inflationary pressures that you deal with, uh, with materials and commodities year after year. But the last couple of years have been literally exponentially higher than that. In some cases, uh, 30% and more per year over the last couple of years. So it's really putting a, a strain on the building environment as we know it today. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I know is the mission of the Builders Association is to educate and advocate for housing affordability. Um, obviously, that's been stretched as hard as it can be in the last, you know, 24 months. Um, well, it is. Yeah. Indiana Builders Association's primary focus is advocacy for Hoosier consumers. A lot of people have a misconception, think the Builders Association is all about you know, what can it do for its members when it's really about what can the members do for Indiana as a whole? Because if if homes aren't affordable for Indiana Hoosiers, then we can't build them. And if we can't build them, then our members are out of business. So we work diligently at the state house in 
trying to stop legislation that does nothing more than increase the cost of housing. Uh, as it was, I mean, as it is and has been over the last number of years, 24% of the cost of new house is already due to government regulation. So every dollar that we can keep out of the cost of a new house that is really going toward needless regulation, the better it is for the, for the consumer. Yeah, one of the interesting things I saw you say in, a, um, I think you were on Wish TV or one of the um, local news um, stations, one of the interesting things I thought you said was that everybody talks about the rising cost of lumber and you said, well, that's only 20% of the cost of a house. So even though it is increased, it's all the other fixtures and things like that that are really running people over. Well, lumber makes the news because it's a commodity-driven uh, entity, just like oil is. I mean, everybody files oil because it's traded as a commodity. Lumber, dimensional lumber, trades as a commodity. Not all lumber does. Sheet goods such as OSB and plywood uh, does not trade on the commodities market. And that the cost of that has risen exponentially. Just um, And I keep using that word exponentially because that I, I don't take that word lightly. It just means it's multiple times the normal expected increase. Uh, OSB that was $12 just a couple of years ago for a four by eight sheet is now over $50. Uh, that's just an example. Lumber, or uh, I'm sorry, not lumber, but uh, electrical wire. A 250-foot roll of electrical wire that was $65 is now $152. Uh, a garage door, a simple standard 16 by 7 two-car garage door that less than two years ago was $578 is now almost $1,400. So it's, it's multiple, multiple products that go into the home, and, and hundreds of products go into, into building a new home, and everything is up at least 15 to 30 percent and in the case of lumber it's higher than that how much do you think of that was driven um by interest rates versus supply chain well interest rates not at all because we haven't even seen the effects of higher interest rates yet uh this whole escalation of the russia ukraine situation they're saying may tamper down the federal reserve's desire to raise interest rates now that we're looking at a potential recession with $127 a barrel oil, gas, you know, at over $4 a gallon, that's going to put a cramp on the everyday consumer. That leads to a slowdown in the economy. The, the whole Fed's purpose of raising interest rates was to slow down the overheated economy. The problem with the Fed, in my opinion, and some others, is that they did not raise interest rates soon enough. They really should have been raising interest rates 18 months ago or at least a year ago to ease down the economy, to tap on the brakes, not slam on the brakes. Now we're getting a, a pretty good slam on the brakes right now with this, this war going on. And we think that that's going to have a negative impact on the economy, which may mean that the interest rates won't have to come as, as steep and as often as they what they were initially predicting with the uh, supply demand issue in let's just talk about realtors there's just not a lot of houses for sale right now that are even you know older homes how much does that impact the new price of homes and the need to build new homes in uh, central indiana well and it's not just central indiana it's all portions of the country are, are facing this supply and demand crunch the problem with housing is it's not an immediate fix you know, the time to build a new house takes many months. And 
and now many more months because of the supply chain disruptions on getting the materials either out from the manufacturer or in the case where they're coming from overseas off of those ships. So uh, it's, it's been a significant challenge in that regard, but uh, you know, the supply and demand has been the factor that's caused uh, the increase in prices for new and existing homes. When you have too few goods and too many people wanting to purchase them, naturally prices are going to go up. Yeah. And for some of us um, younger people that maybe haven't lived through um, the ups and downs and the ebbs and flows that obviously you have made it through as a home builder, because you know, there's a lot of people that keep comparing this to a bubble burst of 2008. How could you uh, compare or even contrast the two time periods? Well, it's different because back then it was more of a monetary issue than it was a supply. And then all of a sudden the demand dried up. Uh, so it, it's, it's kind of two different things. The end result may be the same, however. Uh, you know, we stopped selling houses literally in 2008 in 2009, 2010. It, it lingered on really until 2012, 13, till we started turning the corner to back to some degree of normalcy. But it, is a, it, it really is a different economic environment than it was back then. But again, uh, we sold a lot of houses in 2006 and 2007. 2021 was our highest year for permits in Indiana for single family homes at just over 22,000. That number hadn't been achieved since 2006. But then we got, you know, well under 10,000 in the downturn per annum. And that put a lot of home builders really, quite frankly, out of business, many of which have never returned. Absolutely. As somebody who did survive those years, not saying things are going to get lean, but things are obviously um, increasing in cost and people are going to be more cost conscious or cost conscious, right? Mm -hmm. um, what would be your recommendation to local builders or people that are, you know, seeing this for the first time from a survival standpoint? Well, there's ebbs and flows in any business like home building. I mean, this is not normal. We've had highs, we've had lows, we've had good times, we've had bad times. Uh, it's been very good the last six or seven, eight years. Uh, I mean, it has been steady uh, in the mid-teens, 20-teens, we'll say, uh, 2019, 2020, 2021 were all very, very strong years, record years for my company, as well as many other builders. We're not unique you know, all a uh, rising tide lifts all boats, right? So everybody's done well the last few years, but hopefully everybody's been preparing for, you know, the downturn. So, you know, the ways we do that is we mitigate risk. You know, uh, our company survived the downturn because we weren't sitting on a bunch of undeveloped lots. We weren't sitting on a bunch of speculative homes that were for sale. We had loans on that you know we couldn't pay for and then we couldn't sell and therefore we got the loans called due that's what happened to a lot of builders so it, it's kind of we're, since we're sort of risk adverse at least with our business model we were able to sustain sustain those downturns and and i believe will again we have no idea i don't have a crystal ball as to know how long this is going to last but i know 130 dollars a barrel oil is not sustainable to a good healthy economy because it affects so many things, transportation costs of materials, materials themselves, roof shingles, vinyl siding, PVC pipe, lots of things are manufactured out of oil, oil base. Uh, so, uh, you know, all of those things are going to go up even higher than they already have because we're seeing oil at double the level it was just a few months ago. 
Um, that being said, you're expecting, well, I think we're all expecting another rise in good costs. Um, they're already up 30% in the last couple of years. Are we thinking another double, triple? I mean, at this point, I don't know. You know, the thing that's going to tamper down prices is a slow in demand. Uh, what's going to uh, cause a slow in demand is a slow economy. And we're going to see a slow economy. I mean, nobody knows where this war is headed. Um, you know, if it gets worse, if NATO gets involved, the U.S. gets involved, you know, then we're looking at wartime efforts, and then that changes the ballgame completely. If for some magical reason this gets resolved and things get back to some degree of normalcy, then we're going to get back to the kind of the same supply-demand issues we've been facing with, and we have to figure out how to get over those hurdles by, again, having a nice balance between supply and demand. When one is way out of whack from the other, it either causes you know, extreme price pressure on the low side or extreme price pressure on the high side, which is what we've been facing. So with the, um, the mission of creating you know, or advocating for affordability in housing, what are some of the steps that the Indiana Builders Association are taking right now to um, you know, impact well, that for consumers? You know, this, this legislative term is just wrapped up and we've been able to some, do some things um, you know, to thwart, again, increased uh, house prices. Um, last year was a, a bigger year because there were some wetlands issues that came up that would have increased, you know, lot prices, new developed land prices, you know, as high as $2,000, $3,500 per lot. That all trickles down in the cost of the new home and then trickles down to the consumer. You know, we were able to get the mandate of uh, residential fire sprinklers out of the building code a couple of years ago, that could have added up to $10,000 per cost of a new home. Now, I've got no problem with anybody wanting to put a residential fire sprinkler into their new house, but we don't think it should be mandated. Uh, people that want to buy an affordable house, and that, that word is becoming an oxymoron, and we're now we're, we're kind of changing that mantra to almost be attainable houses, uh, can't afford another $10,000 for something they may never need. Right now, seven out of 10 households cannot afford a new medium priced home and housing affordability will remain a significant channel a challenge in 2022. And it's at the lowest level it's been in a decade for housing affordability. Interestingly enough, though, nationwide, the Indianapolis, Anderson, Carmel, Westfield market still ranks fourth in affordability nationwide. So, uh, you know, we still have re reasonably low land prices. We still have reasonably low uh, labor prices. All that, you know, trickle down into the cost of the final cost of the home. So we're blessed in that regard, but still seven out of 10 can't afford a new medium price home. And, and that's something that we've got to change. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things you talked about in there was some of the labor costs being lower in, you know, Indiana and central Indiana. Talk about kind of the labor shortage or the, you know, trials and tribulations as a home builder we go through all the time looking for subcontractors and everything else. Well, it, it's it's very uh, local market dependent. So in, in the Indianapolis nine county region and even throw in Madison County into that, you know, we have a decent supply of labor. And it's at a decent, good wage for them to make. But if you go up into Lake County, Porter County, some of those Northwest Indiana counties that we also build in, we pay framers, plumbers, electricians, heating and cooling guys two and three times 
the amount we pay them here in central Indiana and in southern Indiana too. So, uh, you know, the closer you get to that Chicago kind of market, you know, which pushes affordability even higher. Now, wages may be higher in that area, that's true, but not so much that they can afford what is really another 15 or 20% increase in the house price, even over what we see in, Indi in central Indiana. So, and you extrapolate that to other major markets and you can see why central Indiana is a kind of an affordable market compared to even our neighboring counties up north. Absolutely. I guess I never even thought about it from a location standpoint, but I guess that's the first three rules of real estate, right? Yeah, exactly. Location, location, location. So um, I know you're here to represent the IBA today, but I'd love to hear a little bit more about Paul and how Hallmark Homes, as somebody who's from Pendleton, Indiana, I know Hallmark's a huge uh, home builder based out of Anderson, Indiana. I'd like to hear a little bit about I know you went to Ball State, studied communications and business. How did you end up uh, building homes and how'd you end up now to where you are today? Well, I, I owned a real estate company. I got into the real estate business at about 17, 18% interest rates in 1983. I got my real estate license. Um, and I remember thinking at that time, boy, if we can ever get interest rates back in the single digits, you know, we'll be living high on the hog. Well, right now, you know, if we ever look at double digits, you know, Katie bar the door, we're all out of business, right? So we've gotten spoiled on these low interest rates. Um, but several years after, uh, you know, I owned that real estate company for about 10 years before we started Hallmark Homes. And we started Hallmark Homes uh, because I started selling homes for another, what we call on your lot builder, uh, representing them uh, for homes around Pendleton, Anderson in that market. And I partnered with a good friend of mine at the time. It was a client, Derek Wilder, uh, who is a CPA and still is. And we kind of got our heads together and say, you know what, this company that I was selling for, uh, you know, they build an okay house, but they're not really offering customization. They're not really giving a good customer experience during a building process. They're not really taking care of their customers after the sale, like we think they ought to be taken care of. So maybe we can figure out a way to build a better mousetrap. Um, so we stuck an ad in the Homes and Land magazine, came up with some floor plans, hired a construction manager, and off we went. So our business model really hasn't changed over, as I said, 30 years this month since we started it. And that's building affordable custom homes on your lot throughout Indiana. We build in about 80 of Indiana's 92 counties. There's certain counties we just can't reach to. Um, so, and, and one reason why we expanded, primarily expanded, was in the 2008 downturn, uh, we found to keep our people employed, and we were very fortunate uh, that we didn't have to really lay anybody off during that downturn, but we did have to spread our wings. We had to, we had to spread our geographic footprint into other counties, and really, we've continued to expand on that. Uh, throughout the years to where we're now building, like I said, in, in most uh, of the counties in Indiana. So our business model hasn't really changed. You know, we've changed with the times. We've tried to with plan style and design and customer features. And, and, and certainly we've improved immensely in the way we construct a house. Uh, you know, our quality control systems, our purchase order systems. You know, we're, we're as much a technology company almost these days as we are a construction company. Um, so we've grown like everybody's had to grow with the advent of the technology because back in then, and you know, that was the infancy of the internet when we started in, in 92, right? It was, I remember Derek calling me on the phone one night and says, Hey, I got to tell you about this 
this new thing and it was basically the internet and i'm like what i mean that's got to be terribly expensive to even have that access you know he's like no it's free i'm like what you know i couldn't i couldn't believe i still remember that conversation uh so now imagine where we'd be today without the internet so uh uh, technology has really played a big key in what we do, but we're still a consumer driven, you know, a one-on-one. We're ne- our business is never going to be replaced by robots or machines. You know, we build the homes on site and our customer interaction and, you know, our customer focus is still uh, on a one-to-one basis. What's, um, what's one of the biggest lessons you've learned in 30 years of doing this? Obviously to, to change and adapt is one of those things that um, a lot of home builders maybe don't put as a priority. Um, what would you put as number one? Well, that's probably the best thing I can think of is change and adapt because, you know, we've had to change uh, the way we do business many times. We had to change it in downturn of 2008. We had to change it in 2020 and 2021. I mean, uh, for example, you know, for many, many years, we were able to guarantee our customers uh, the price that they signed for the construction agreement stage for a minimum of six months. You know, as long as we could start your house in six months, we could guarantee that we could meet that price when we started your home, even if lumber and labor went up. Well, over the past couple of years, we haven't been able to do that because the, the market changes so fluidly on prices that we're now having to reevaluate uh, the price that we've signed a, a customer at on a construction agreement prior to their home being appraised, prior to their loan closing, prior to us starting the house, we may have to go back in and renegotiate that deal with them, not in order for us to just, quote, make more money, but for, for us to still be able to build a home at a profitable level enough for us to sustain as a business, because ultimately we can't build houses and lose money or we'll be out of business, Right. So it's not increasing our margins. It's not doing anything but keeping us working, still getting them into the home. But in some cases, we've had to go back to the customer and adjust the price, five, 10, 15, some cases, $20,000, depending on the scope of the house and how long ago it was they signed a construction agreement before we were actually ready to start the house. So that's just another way of adapting. I've talked to other builders that have called me and said, hey, have you raised your price on any customers yet? And I'm like, yeah, we've been doing that for a while, because if you don't, you're going to turn around and you're going to look at your checkbook someday or your balance sheet and say, wow, we're out of money because we've spent more than we brought in because we were actually building homes at less what, less than what they cost us to make. That's one thing I'm nice about, uh, well, many things nice about working with somebody like Derek, uh, who's a CPA that always has his hand on the financial end of this business, because ultimately it is a business and has to be run as a business first and foremost, but, you know, serving our customers is a number one priority, but staying in business is, is a big one too, obviously. Obviously you got to stay in business. Yeah. We've got um, a list of 10 rules of business in our office and rule number one is stay in business. There's a lot of businesses that don't get to number two, cause that's make money. Right. But number three is know your numbers. Right. So I would say that, you know, sometimes with uh, organizations like home building, a lot of people don't have that CPA partner. And a lot of guys just don't know their numbers, especially if they're fluid and changing every day. Well, many people jump into small businesses as an offshoot of their trade. Uh, For example, a lot of home builders got into business because maybe they were framers and they frame for other builders. And now they thought, well, I can do this. I'm going to go out and start 
a home building company. Well, they now they know the technical side of it, but they don't know the most critical side of it, and that's the business side. And I see this from many other trades, you know, plumbers, electricians, you know, lots of guys think starting a business is easy because I know the skill that it takes to get the job done. But that's only half the battle, right? Knowing how to do something will only get you so far if you don't know how to manage it. You don't know how to build that business from the ground up from a financial standpoint. You know, the cash flow that it takes to run a construction company or a home building company is tremendous. And, I, you know, had I done this on my own, I'd probably been bankrupt because I would have been wanting to take money out of the, out of the company because I'd have been, hey, there's money in the checking account. I think I'll take some out. But Derek's like, no, we can't take any money out because we're going to need that cash. The more houses we have going, the more houses, the more cash is going to take to keep that uh, company cash flow positive. Because in construction, particularly cash, cash intense, because we're always behind in cash while a home is being built, because we never get truly paid in full until it's 100% complete. So if we have 40 houses under construction, and we're behind just $20,000 on each house from a cash flow perspective, you can do the math on that pretty quick and realize that's $800,000. And, and if you don't have lines of credit or enough capital in your company, the cash flow of that growing big will put you out of business quicker than having fewer sales. We talk about it all the time in our office. It's a round table, right? You know, every good business owner needs a good banker good insurance agent, a good lawyer. You got to have these people and a good accountant, everybody all at your table, because if you don't have, especially in, you're always waiting on a check in construction, there's always money outstanding. Mm -hmm. So if you don't have that banker, who's walking you through lines of credit and you don't have the accountant that can show you the profit and loss statement, and you don't have the lawyer saying, Hey, don't do that. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, these guys, yeah, it's a little bit of that Icarus syndrome, right? You fly a little bit too close to the sun it's almost impossible to do on your own to any large scale. Now, I'm not saying you can't go out and build a house or two or five or six uh, by yourself with one or two other guys, uh, you running your own books or your spouse or what have you, it can be done. But taking that to a uh, much bigger level, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 houses, changes the ballgame completely. Uh, but then you do need all those people because then you do start getting, you know, for every, if you only 2% of your customers are unhappy, that means 2% of your customers might be calling an attorney. And now you need that attorney you mentioned to, to help you uh, litigate or arbitrate an issue that you might have in construction or, you know, post-construction kind of thing. Uh, you always need good financial people. You always need good tax people. You always need good insurance people. So you're absolutely right. And those, those key people become ever so much more important, the bigger you get in your company, regardless of what company you're in. I don't care if you're a flower shop or you're a construction company, the bigger you get, uh, the more difficult it becomes from a lot of different levels. Absolutely. So like um, one of the things we were talking about earlier when I introduced you was I called this the first episode where I'm calling the blue collar blueprint. Mm -hmm. Um, The blue collar blueprint was designed because our organization does tax accounting, insurance, and financial advisory. And the reason we fit so well in the blue collar businesses is they want a one-stop shop a lot of the time, or they're, they're all, especially that guy that's just now letting go of his own, that 
that person or to have the table all at one place makes it a little bit easier. And I think it's the education from the business side doesn't happen unless it has to happen or it's too late. So we're just trying to create a platform for people like yourself who've done it, right? And now you're the president of organization that runs however many um, members across the state. Um, I, I think that your advice is invaluable to a lot of people. Well, we have about 2,600 members um, in Indiana. And, um, you know, that number is down from the 2006 level from about 7,000 since a lot of people, you know, consolidation took care of part of that. But a lot of people, like I said, got out of the business because of the fact that, uh, uh, you know, just the downturn put them out of business. But I would say the most, one of the most important things to keep in mind when running a business is not only know what you can do, know what you can't do, know what you're not good at and get those people around you to take care of that end of the business. Um, you know, I can balance my own checkbook. I can run an Excel spreadsheet. I can have my own budget, but I can't do it for a $20 million real estate you know, a single family home builder. Uh, but Derek has a team of people like Amber and others in my office and Philip, another CPA, um, a stepson, in fact, uh, that, um, you know, runs the financial end of things. Uh, don't leave that up to me because it isn't going to work well. You know, my strength is in sales and, and marketing and that kind of thing. Uh, their strength is in the financial end. So I know I can't, I can't do that. I don't want to do that. Um, so the things that you can't do and the things that you don't want to do is critically important to find those key people within your organization uh, that know and want to do those things. Yeah, and I, I've always heard this. Egos are expensive. So it, it's hard to let somebody else do something you think you're good at, even if you're bad at it. Even if you don't think you're good at it, it's hard to let go of control. Um, so I believe that a million percent. It's fine, well, people. Yeah, yeah. We we lost our egos years ago in this business. <laughs> you know, uh, I mean, we have to have confidence in ourselves and confidence in the people around us. But as far as thinking we know how to do this better than anyone else, and thinking that our systems are the best and our plans are the best and our this and that are the best, I mean, that that's gone out the window because there's always somebody around the corner that's better than you, that's bigger than you, that. It's been doing it longer than you, et cetera, just like it is with, with most things in life. So uh, big egos is not something that we're big about within our company, but we do want, you know, strong, self-confident people, you know, working around us. Uh, but attitude, you know, a, a aptitude or attitude goes a long way uh, over aptitude. So we can take somebody with a good attitude and turn them into a good construction manager, let's say, as opposed to somebody that's really good construction manager, but their attitude's terrible. You know, they're, they're cocky. They don't deal well with customers. You know, they have an, uh, they flip an attitude when, when problems arise. I mean, those kind of people will be out of work within our organization much quicker than somebody that has a positive attitude that wants to learn, that's willing to work, that works well with customers, but just need to learn the systems and how to build a house a little better. Those people are much more apt to stay with our company a long term. And we've had, we've had people in our organization literally as long as Derek and I have been, almost 30 years. Uh, many of our construction managers have been 15, 20 years with us. Um, and people like Amber are in, in the accounting departments, I, I don't know how long she's been with us, but it's been a long time, um, you know, 15 years maybe, I don't know. Uh, it's, it's like time flies, right? So, um, you know, retention is, is key uh, to a successful organization because turnover 
you know, high turnover creates, you know, more training, uh, less productivity, et cetera. So, um, you know, that's, that's the other part of the puzzle. Hire right, uh, treat your, your, your employees uh, promptly, you know, correctly, uh, pay them a decent wage and keep, you know, keep them happy and get their input and you'll have retention. Uh, will take care of itself. Yeah. One of the, I mean, the fourth rule of business, just to go back, it's one of the things I wrote down is attract and keep good people, right? That goes for customers just as much as it goes for employees. More so with with employees, for sure. Well, obviously you're doing it the right way. Um, There's a lot of blue collar guys I talk to that say, well, I'll double my business if I could just keep somebody. I'll double my business if I could just hire the right guy. What are some of the things that you say you do different um, to do those things or have done different? In hiring? Hiring, well, yeah, ha- hiring, attracting, keeping good people. Well, hiring is always a challenge, especially in economies where you have lo- low unemployment, right? So whenever we're in need for a new construction manager in a high, uh, you know, uh, high demand market where there's low unemployment, it's difficult to get people to leave maybe their current construction management position to come to work for us. Uh, so once we get them in front of us and can explain how we work, uh, that we are not going to micromanage them to death. We're not going to have you know weekly meetings with them where they have to come to some office and sit for three and four hours, and and we're going to tell them they have to do this report and that report, and they have to you know punch a clock. You know our people don't punch clocks. Uh, you know the majority of the people in our office are still working from home, not because we still have a pandemic to be concerned about. It's because once we realized when they went home, their productivity actually increased. Uh, their travel time went to nothing. Uh, so, you know, we're not concerned about having a bunch of people coming in, hovering around the water cooler anymore when they want to work at home and they're more productive to do that. So I think, you know, the aspect that we give them the autonomy to do their job, we give them the space to do their job and we let them kind of, uh, you know, uh, sink or swim, if you will. Uh, we'll give them all the help they need, but ultimately their success is going to be driven by how well they perform, not how much we're pounding into them, you know, the way we want things done. So I think that's probably our, you know, our, some of the things that keep us uh, successful in, in respect to our, our team. Absolutely. I think those are, especially in the ever-changing world, right? Um, so of your 2,600 members in uh, IBA, how many would you say are true home builders and how many are like subcontractors, framers, that sort of stuff? Uh, a little over 700 are, are true uh, uh, home builders or remodelers. We have a lot mm-hmm. of remodelers. Uh, Marcy Chong's Midwest Remodeling there in Pendleton is one of our uh, great members. And Marcy's up and coming on the IBA ladder. She'll be president, I think, probably in about another five years of Indiana Builders Association. At least we have her slated for that. Um, so um, about, about 700 and some are builders or remodels. The others are uh, what we call associate members or affiliate members that things like uh, painters, like trim carpenters, like concrete uh, laborers, or title companies, lawyers, insurance companies, vendors, suppliers, uh, lots of, there's lots of industries that revolve around residential construction and like commercial construction. Um, so we, we try and attract all those members because you know, everybody's dues dollars goes helps to support the function of the NAHB, IBA, and your local association. Again, to keep housing affordable, to educate our uh, our industry, 
our members with new and upcoming trends and as well as, you know, coursework for designations. And I just finished teaching four days of classes last week in Indianapolis for what's called aging in place uh, certifications for people to specialize in uh, how to build homes and remodel homes for people to stay in their homes longer, given the given the fact that most people want to stay in their homes longer. So how can we build and remodel homes uh, more efficiently for people to maximize their livability in the home as they get older? Those kind of things. So a uh, tremendous amount of work the Builders Association does on all levels. Um, you know, we just had the International Builder Show in Orlando uh, last month, you know, had over 60,000 people uh, combined with a uh, Kitchen and Bath International Show and vendors from all over the world come and display their goods and new and upcoming products and seminars, everything from financial accounting software to, dra to drafting, uh, you know, computers and software and, and, of course, all building components and everything of all kinds. So uh, getting involved in the uh, Builders Association is the best thing a, a builder or remodeler can do to enhance their business uh, and work on their business, um, even if they need help on some of the things we talked about, like accounting and finance and and expertise in those areas, the Builders Association is there to help them work through those uh, issues as well. Yeah, I think that's that's beautiful. I think there's not enough people that go and ask for help. So if people listening to this, uh, call them blue collar business owners, call them residents, remodels, modelers, how can they join the IBA? Um, how do they become active in the IBA? Something that I've realized in my associations is you can become a part of association, but if once you, you know, get involved in association, that's when you see the true benefits. Well, you can, uh, the easiest way is to go to NAHB, National Association of Home Builders website, nahb.org backslash join. Uh, that will take you right to the sign up page. You enter your zip code uh, where you live, and it's going to hook you up with the closest local association to where you live. If that's where you want to uh, have your association membership, or if you, want, if you work in, say, Indianapolis, but live in Pendleton and you want to join the Indianapolis Association, then you might put your work zip code in there. Uh, but then just fill out the form. You pay by credit card uh, you know, for your first year of dues, and, and then off you go. You'll get a welcoming, welcoming kit. But you know, you're not automatically just, boom, once you're signed up, now you're, you're super active. You have to make a concerted effort to get active in your association. And that usually starts on the local level. Most local associations have monthly meetings. I know we do in Madison County where we meet, we have lunch, we have a speaker come in, we'll network with our vendors and suppliers. And, you know, we then have opportunities and discuss opportunities on how to get involved at the state level as far as committees, you know, and, and then, you know, the, then the sky's the limit. Then you can get into the leadership role like I did by getting into what we call the chairs, you know, your secretary, then your treasurer, then your vice president and your president. So you work your way into the leadership role. Um, but, you know, if that's not for everybody, that's that's fine. But uh, getting involved in the committees and the functions, we have golf outings. We have uh, we're having a great meeting coming up in June in French Lick. Senator Braun's going to speak. We're having a combining it with a golf outing at the French Lick golf course. You know, we're inviting everybody to come down there and partake in that for for two days of meetings and networking and fellowship and and fun, uh, skeet shooting and golf and 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 of course the casino. So uh, you know, the Builders Association affords lots of opportunities to get plugged in uh, to whatever extent you want to get plugged in. Nobody's going to hound you to come to meetings every week. Uh, nobody's going to hound you to do anything other than get involved to the extent 
and degree that you want to get involved. Well, absolutely. I think that's great. So for everybody listening, go ahead and look up NAHB.org. Go ahead and join. I know that I just joined our local Madison County Chamber or Association. I'm super excited to not only get to know more builders in our association, but learn more about helping um, you know business owners and then also our end consumer find affordable housing here in Madison County. So, Paul, I appreciate your time. Um, have a great day. Hey guys, thank you again so much for your love and support of the Performance Group Podcast. For more information on the podcast, the Performance Group, or even our guests, feel free to reach out directly via our website, performancegroupindiana.com, or feel free to email me directly, which is sean at performancegroupindiana.com. We'll see you guys next week.